Hello and welcome back to The Bloody Pit. This is episode 138. A little uh, bonus episode in a weird way. Um, because we just covered a Sherlock Holmes film. Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce in the 1940s. But this is October, so I asked our Sherlock Holmes fanatic. That would be Beth. Hello, Beth. Hi. I asked her to pick a couple of older radio shows, adaptations of stories, or even news stories, that would lend themselves to being, oh, I don't know, part of the season, kind of October-ish. A little something to whet your appetite for the, the creepy season, for Halloween, you know, that thing that happens at the end of October. So she went on a hunt and uh, made a few decisions here and there, and she came up with a couple, one from the title, Made it pr- made itself pretty clear that it was probably some kind of horror-related story, and it's from uh, it's one of the ones from the 1940s. Uh, what's the what's the first one we got here? Though this is this is from uh, when Nigel Bruce was still playing Watson on the radio program, correct? Yes, and Tom Conway is playing Sherlock. You're talking about the adventure of the Carpathian Horror, the Carpathian Horror. Yes. <laughs> Yes, that's the one you picked out. Yes. I don't know why you would wonder, considering what the title of the second one is, but yes. Uh, the Adventure of the Carpathian Horror. Uh, Carpathian Horror. Spells out uh, something vampirish to me. So, um, what made you choose this one other than the fact that we were looking for a creepy one? Well, um, Sherlock, you know, is basically in Dole's perfect world. He's mainly facts and he doesn't believe in superstition and he poo-poos supernatural most of the time so you you really have a hard time finding something really spooky and ghosty with Sherlock so what I was trying to do is find uh, two that actually kind of felt spooky and at least started out with something a little supernatural about them, even though he may naysay it at the end. But uh, yeah, know. he may Scooby Doo it at the end <laughs> exactly. there a little bit. So uh, not that we'll give anything away there, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. As you mentioned before, um, Sherlock is played by uh, Tom Conway in this, who is one of the people who took over the role after Basil Rathbone moved on. And I have to admit that listening to this episode, I, I, there are times when Conway sounds a whole lot like Basil Rathbone. And uh, part of that is just because they, well, come from the same country, of course, and have similar accents and are very good at pronouncing their vowels in a proper British way. But at the same time, it it was kind of a a creepy little addition that has nothing to do with the story at hand to realize that, well, he really sounds like Basil Rathbone a few times here. That's (laughs) odd. I don't know if he did that on purpose or not. I, that's that's kind of what I would like to know, but I, I'm not sure if he does. Yeah, yeah. It's it's mm-hmm. it, it, regardless, it it works. So uh, this is done by Cremel Hair Tonic and Shampoo. Oh, you mean the, the sponsor? The sponsor is, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Uh, they're not my favorite. This guy. Well, no, there's no wine involved in this one, right? Uh, well, no, and this guy sounds like a. a he's just got a weird sounding voice. Okay. And, he he's just way too he's way too happy about his hair products. <laughs> okay. And um, it just he just he creeps me out a little bit. But, <laughs> but uh, I I mean I but you know it's it's not you know, not in a good way. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, it was. It's not as good as the CBS theater because it doesn't have it didn't have extras. It's just 
all it's ab- just the yeah. story yeah. it's just oh he's, is wait a minute is this one did they did they try to pretend they adapted this from something because this sounds like an original story to me uh this was adapted from the sussex vampire really okay okay yeah, so and, they, they played around with sussex vampire a little bit all right yeah it, it's a good bit different though yeah and i thought that to my this, memory yeah i thought that this did a lot better job of being spooky Oh, well, okay. In fact, the guy who plays the bear, the count, excuse me, not the bear and the count, he is way dramatic. He's got a lot <laughs> of emotion, and he he really sells the the uh, afraid and horrified and scared and maybe insane a little bit. <laughs> so he's good. Okay. He's good. Uh, he and the guy who plays his brother, they're both good, and the accents are good. So I, I enjoyed that part of it. Um, now, uh, the only part I wasn't too crazy about, again, was Watson, because for some reason in this particular script adaptation, he becomes a complete British prig. He is... What do you he, mean? He just he starts off just completely surly. <laughs> <laughs> He's not happy about going. He's not happy on the trip. Uh, just he's in a bad mood, and and then he, you know, he ends up talking bad about the country and insulting the the count's home. And so he's about, he's your standard Englishman abroad. Yes, he's being her, and 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 I don't remember being Watson being that way, but suddenly he's got a whole lot of it. Um, well, I don't remember it being that way about Sussex and the original story, so no, I don't know. Maybe they ramped it up since they, we're going to move it to, to to Hungary. I don't it know. Did and um, he calls the whole thing a wild goose chase. Um, and as soon as he gets well, not to give too much away. <laughs> anyway, and I mean, he immediately was like saying the count is off his rocker and he's certifiable, and I mean, he's just yeah. But I kind of like that. <laughs> I kind of I kind of like having Watson going. Okay, he's a lunatic. Let's yeah, just move just on. Just lunatic. Um, and then again, to add insult to injury, not only is he you know completely just in a bad mood the whole time, he ends up again falling asleep on watch. Uh, yeah, I made note of that myself, considering that he, he managed to do that in the film we just covered, Sherlock Holmes and the Secret Weapon. Watson falling asleep seems to be a trend in uh, uh, I won't call it hack script writing, but. Uh, uh, shall we say, boy, we got to boil this down quick. How do we make this happen? Oh, yeah. Watson the doofus. Let him fall asleep again. And then he and then he ends up dropping the only light they have in a darkened crypt. Well, let's not give everything oh, sorry, away. Sorry. Let's not give everything away. <laughs> you might as well tell him the damn story now. Sorry. Well, all sorry. right, folks. Here's uh, here's uh, our first story tonight. We're going to be we're, we're going to do two. Uh, this is from, I think, 1947. This is. From the New Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, Tom Conway and Nigel Bruce in The Adventure of the Carpathian Eagle. Am I right there? Carpathian Horror. Damn, Carpathian Horror. <laughs> I'm not even going to edit that out. Here you go, folks. Check it out. Tonic and Kremel Shampoo present the new adventures of Sherlock Holmes, starring Nigel Bruce as Dr. Watson and Tom Conway as Sherlock Holmes. Now, 
Now let's drop in for our weekly visit to Sherlock Holmes' friend and ours, Dr. Watson. Well, Dr. Watson, how are you? Yes, sir, Mr. Bell. Thank you. And you? Fine, thanks. Ah, uh-huh, I see. You've kept your promise to open your dispatch box and bring out your files in connection with the adventure of the Carpathian Horror. Indeed I have, Mr. Bell, just as I promised. And a most macabre adventure it was, too. I'm eager to hear it. So you shall, Mr. Bell, so you shall. But first, uh, am I correct in deducing that you have, you'd like to have a word with, uh, with our listeners? <laughs> a most accurate deduction, Dr. Watson. Men, if you want your hair to look handsomely groomed from morning until night, use Kremel hair tonic. Kremel contains a special combination of hair grooming ingredients which is found in no other hair tonic. This wonderful, natural-looking hairdressing has just enough light oil to keep hair perfectly groomed with an attractive, healthy-looking luster. Yet Kremel never gives hair that offensive, cheap, greasy look. Kremel always looks and feels so clean on both hair and scalp. Try it, men. K-R-E-M-L, Kremel hair tonic. Now, Dr. Watson, what about the adventure of the Carpathian horror? It all began with this very letter which I have here in my hand, Mr. Bell. A letter from a most prosaic firm of solicitors. Holmes and I were at breakfast one spring morning in June 902, shortly after the end of the South African War. Holmes had been bored and restless since the conclusion of our last case, and this was the first time that I'd heard him laugh for days. I must say, Watson, that the Morning Post has brought at least one unusual communication. For a mixture of the modern and the medieval, of the uh, practical and the wildly fanciful, this letter is really the limit. Oh? Why, Holmes? Listen. 24, Gray's Inn, London, June the 4th. Re-vampires. Re-what? Re-vampires. The legal mind is always precise, no matter how odd the subject. The letter goes on as follows. Mr. Sherlock Holmes. Sir. Our client, Count Paul Romani of Grasnia and Carpathia, whose trustees we are has made inquiry from us in a communication of even date concerning vampires and demoniac possession. As our firm specializes entirely in trusteeships and chancery work, the matter hardly comes within our purview, and we trust that you will be able to take the matter in hand. We hope you will call upon us at your earliest convenience with a view toward undertaking the case. Please ask for our Mr. Atterbury. We remain, sir, faithfully yours, Wilkinson, Wilkinson, Entwistle, and Dodd. (laughs) Scott Holmes, that's the weirdest farrago of legal jargon and sheer nonsense that I've ever heard. I wonder, Watson, the mention of Carpathia is most significant. Significant of what? Uh, for one thing, that remote and mountainous section of southeastern Europe has been the stronghold for centuries of all the legends of vampirism. Oh, rubbish. Oh, come, come, Watson. Where's your spirit of adventure? After weeks of lying in the doldrums, here's a fresh breeze from the unexpected uh, environs of Gray's Inn. Come on, it's a beautiful morning for a walk. Where to? Wilkinson, Wilkinson, Entwistle, and Dodd. And then, I hope, Carpathia. Really, Holmes, of all the forsaken spots that I've ever seen, this is the worst. Not a light in sight, not a sign of human habitation. You've dragged me two-thirds of the way across Europe on what will unquestionably prove a wild goose chase. At least we have our fishing rods with us, my dear fellow. And we can always console ourselves with the promise of some of the best trout streams to be found anywhere. And you must admit that this mountainous Carpathian country offers some superb scenery. You might admit it if I could see it, as it's uh, black as the ace of spades, to coin a phrase. Ah, there we are. Here, look out of the window on this side. 
A veritable like of the castle. Cheerful-looking place, I must say. When did that fellow Atterbury say that it had been built? Uh, the first Count Romany built it in 1410. 1410? That's given it almost 500 years in which to disintegrate. Gloomy pile of stone, if ever I saw one. Look at all those turrets and battlements. Probably damper inside the out. Well, we'll soon see. Hi, careful with that luggage driver. Careful. And here you are, my man. Well, they follow that driver. You think the devil was after him the way he drove off? He shook up the moment he heard our destination. Evidently, the Count's local reputation is not an enviable one. Well, I can't say that we're getting a very warm reception. They must have heard us, driver. Well, here's the door, but I can't see any sign of a bell. And they seem a trifle short of modern conveniences. Let's try the knocker. Well, I really think this is perfectly outrageous, Holmes. Why the devil does... It's the name. What you say? It's the name. Pardon, oh, Holmes. Uh, do you speak English? What you want? Nobody can come in. Count Romania, see nobody. Uh, Count Romania is expecting us. Mr. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. You got letter? Yes. Here. Come. What did I tell you, Holmes? Look at these walls. Simply oozing dampness. You, uh, wait here. There, Watson. That's better, isn't it? That fire will take the chill out of your bones. I need something to counteract the effect of all those family portraits. <laughs> Rum-looking lot, aren't they? Remarkably interesting collection. Curious how the family likeness remains unmistakable through so many generations. Well, judging from the looks of that fellow in the wig, cirrhosis of the liver must have been another of the family's inheritances. Hard-drinking crew, probably. Servus, Mr. Holmes. I'm Count Romany. I can't tell you how glad I am to see you. Thank you, Count Romany. This is my colleague, Dr. Watson. How do you do? Dr. Watson, it was good of you to come so far. Uh, something to drink, gentlemen? Oh, a little something would go very well, thank you. Good. I don't know just how much my solicitors in London may have told you, Mr. Holmes. A very little, Count Romany. Uh, so little, in fact, that I must confess my surprise at your perfect command of our language. Oh, well, my father had me educated in England. Very sound, sir. Couldn't do better. Sit down, gentlemen. Sit down. I... I hardly know where to begin my story. The whole thing so horrible. Perhaps it'll make it a bit easier for you if I tell you that Mr. Atterbury showed me your letters to him. Then you know that... that I believe I'm going mad. Or worse. Oh, Dr. Watson will bear me out, Count Romany, when I tell you that... Uh, People who really are on the verge of insanity never think it of themselves. Oh, no, that's quite so, quite so. I wish I could share that belief. But you see these portraits of my family. There have been strange legends coming down through the years of occasional weird and nameless horrors that have taken possession of each fourth generation. The fourth Romania died mad. The eighth lived out his life in the locked and guarded tower of the castle. And I am the twelfth Romania. All old families have legends. That's uh, hardly a basis for any fear. I, I quite agree with you. But some months ago, my father died, and I became the twelfth count. A few weeks later, I retired to bed one evening after reading quietly here in the library, only to undergo a dream of such vividness that I shall never forget it. A dream of brightly colored corridors, their length stretching endlessly into the distance. There are walls echoing with strange, unworldly music. 
In my dream, I hurried from empty room to empty room through floods of brilliant, very colored light. I saw no people, no living things, only the rooms of ruby and gold and jet and sapphire and emerald. At times, the music seemed to be far away, thin and cold, as though coming from the depths of interstellar space. And then again, it would seem so near that, that I was certain I would find its source in the next room that I entered. In my endless search for I knew not what. At last, after a ounce of time, I awoke to find myself in my own bedroom. Oh, but my dear fellow, my dear fellow, a vivid dreams, nothing unusual. It wasn't a dream, Doctor. It was what I saw upon awaking in my room. My door was still locked. But the rug bore the imprint of wet and naked feet. And across the foot of my bed there lay, still dripping, some strands of weed from the moat of the castle. Surely there's a natural explanation for that. Yes, my boy. Are you by any chance subject to walking in your sleep? No, Dr. Watson. And even if I were, I could not have walked through a locked and bolted door. And the windows? The windows of my room give on a wall of the castle that drops sheer for 60 feet. Nothing but a fly could go up or down. Well, Mr. Holmes, the next morning, a dog belonging to one of the local woodcutters was found dead in the castle moat. And with no blood left in his body. And the next time, time Count Romany, I'm certain there must have been repetitions to bring you to your present fear. The next dream came a few weeks later. Again, I saw the brilliantly colored rooms. Again, I heard the unearthly music. And when you awoke? I was in my bed. And for a moment, I thought that nothing was wrong. Then... When I turned up the lamp, I saw streaks of gray across my bedspread and grayish footprints upon the rug. Dust? Dust, Mr. Holmes. And a moment later, I received horrible confirmation of its source. For lying beside me on the pillow was the heavy, ancient, wrought-iron key which unlocks the burial vaults of the Romany. What an extraordinary thing. Since your action in sending for me shows that you don't lack for moral courage, Count Romany... I'm certain that you paid an immediate visit to your family vault. Quite right, Mr. Holmes, quite right. In the company of my cousin Peter and several of the servants, and with torches to light our way, we visited the subterranean vault which is cut into the mountainside under the castle. And you found? We, we found that the coffins of the fourth and eighth Count Romani had been opened. Their lids shoved aside. The bones of my ancestors tumbled out upon the stone. Lord. Here, 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 my boy. Drink this. You'll feel better. Thank you, Doctor. Well, now you understand, Mr. Holmes, why I sent for you. I do indeed. I consulted doctors. They gave me pills to make me sleep when sleep was the one thing I dreaded. The local priests spoke learnedly of exorcism and its possession by the devils. But it could not put an end to my dreams. The servants have run away in superstitious fear. Oh, except old Anton who admitted you. Peasants flee at the sight of me. Only my cousin Peter Hallis, who stayed bravely and loyally at my side, still remains with me. Mr. Holmes, am I mad? Tell me, am I mad? Or am I cursed by some fearful family taint? All that I can tell you at the moment, Count Romani, is that the priest was not mistaken when he said the devil has been at work here. I must apologize, gentlemen, for our limited cuisine. 
But with all of the staff gone except old Anton, our meals are rather scratchy. Oh, my dear, I can't remind you. Your wine cellar more than makes up for it. Well, you know, if you would take my prescription, Paul, and get out on a horse every day for a few hours of hunting, you would have a better appetite. <laughs> my cousin Peter is quite a materialist gentleman. He believes that all the evils of the flesh and the spirit can be cured by enough exercise. <laughs> and I will wager that Dr. Watson agrees with me, eh? And Doctor. Well, there's a good deal to be said for your theory, Mr. Harris. Mensana in corpore sano, you know. <laughs> your cousin is, of course, familiar with the events you described to us earlier, Count Romanian. Of course, Mr. Holmes. I've no secrets from good old Peter here. And what is your opinion of these strange events, Mr. Halash? Too much reading, too much thinking, too much brooding about the sins of our ancestors. I only hope that you and Dr. Watson can persuade Paul that all these dreams of his are just a lot of nonsense. Well, I hope so, too, I assure you. Uh, and now, gentlemen, I imagine you're ready to retire. We've had a long and wearying trip. I'll ring for Anton. Should there be a recurrence of your dreams, Count Romani, please call me the instant you awaken. Well, damp walls or no damp walls, I shall have no trouble sleeping tonight. I'm afraid you will, Watson. What? I intend that one of us shall keep the Count's door under observation all night. For heaven's sake, why? There's no doubt in your mind the poor chap is definitely unbalanced, is there? Is that your opinion? Well, certainly. Curious oh, cake of delusions I overheard. Poor chap's absolutely certifiable. Nevertheless, Watson, we shall keep watch. I'll take the first, and I shall call you at midnight. What's the matter? Watson, wake up. What's up? I thought you were on watch. Oh, I must have dropped off. I can't understand Let how. wait. Uh, what is it? The Count. Come quick. Look, Mr. Holmes, my cousin. There in his bed. Good heavens, Holmes. There's blood smeared all over his hands and on the bedclothes. But no sign of a wound. Just a minute. I can feel his pulse. He's only fainted. Now what happened? I, I heard him cry out. Ran down to his room. The door was half open, and Paul was lying across the bed, just as you see him now. It is the curse of the Romans, Sanson. Stop that nonsense! No nonsense. Priests say my master possessed by evil spirit. What's that? Sounds like someone riding hard. Coming this way. I will go to the door. You were right, Holmes. I can't find any sign of a wound on his body. I can't imagine where the blood came from. I very much fear that I can. What do you mean, Holmes? Holmes. Count Romany. My dream, Holmes. My dream. I had it again tonight. Holmes. Holmes. Mr. Holmes. That's the police inspector from Brasnia. A young girl was murdered tonight. Oh, no. And the prints of a man's naked feet led directly here to the castle. Just a moment, we'll find out what happens next in the strange case of Count Romany. Men, when you buy a hair tonic, get your money's worth. Enjoy the extra advantages of Cremel hair tonic. No other hair tonic keeps the hair more neatly groomed and attractive looking. But Cremel does lots more than keep hair looking handsome. You simply can't beat Cremel to lubricate a dry scalp. 
At the same time, it removes itchy loose dandruff and leaves the scalp feeling so alive and invigorated. No wonder Kremel is preferred among America's most successful men. Buy a bottle of Kremel at any drug counter. Ask for an application at your barber shop. Use Kremel daily for better groomed hair, a more hygienic scalp. K-R-E-M-L, Kremel hair tonic. Now, Dr. Watson, what happened after Count Romani's third and most terrible dream? Well, Romani was such a, in such a state of profound shock over the horror that had taken place that I thought it best to administer a strong sedative. Leaving Anton to watch over his master, Holmes and I, with Mr. Peter Hallish, to act as interpreter, drove down with the police inspector to the home of the murdered girl. Ask the inspector to bring that lamp a little nearer, will you, Mr. Hallish? Jose de Orlenfight. Shocking, Holmes. Simply shocking. Her injuries look as though they'd been done by a wild animal. You're quite right, Watson. <laughs> My poor cousin. Oh, no court could hold him legally responsible. He'd have to be put away, of course. Hello, what's, what's all that shouting outside? It's the peasants. The news must have spread. They're shouting, To each our fellow Kosh state, burn the castle. Palalo Vampira, death to the vampire. Hakazuk cell. Hang him. Well, Holmes, we'd better drive back to the castle immediately. That mob's in an angry temper. They mustn't be allowed to wreak their vengeance on that poor mad boy. Quite right, Watson. I've seen all I wish to hear. Come, Mr. Hellish, we'd better be getting back to the castle just as fast as we can. As a medical man, Dr. Watson, do you think that there's any chance that my cousin under proper treatment and care might eventually be brought back to normality? Well, I'm afraid not, Mr. Hellish. In fact, these cases generally grow progressively worse. Well, here's the poor fellow's room. He's probably still asleep from the effects of the sedative that I gave him. Ah, Anton. Is the Count still asleep? Ah, oh, speak up, man. The dead, it's empty. He's gone. Gone? Gone? He's gone where you never find him. My master, no way for you to lock him up like animals. What shall we do? Where has he gone? Those peasants will be here in an hour. Holmes? What are you looking for? For something that should be here on the desk. Something the Count showed us last night. The key to the Roman burial vault. But, but why should he... Why should he take that, Mr. Holmes? It's gone right enough. Bring that lamp, Watson. We may yet be in time to avert the final disaster. Careful, Doctor. Steps ahead here. The floor is very slippery. This passageway must have been cut out of the very heart of the mountain. It was. They keep in the rock itself. If all these twistings and turnings haven't confused my sense of direction, we must be almost under the castle. That's right, Mr. Holmes. The burial log. Are you right, Watson? My feet simply went right out from under me. Broke the lamp, I'm afraid. I know the passageway. It's not much farther to the burial chamber. We will have to go slowly, though. Make what speed you can. I'll keep my hand on your shoulder. Watson, do the same with me. I only hope it hasn't occurred to him to lock the door of the vault after he entered it. If he did, we're beaten. Careful now. The passage bends sharp to the right. Just a bit farther along. Well, wouldn't it be more merciful, Holmes, to let the poor fellow take his own way out? After all, the best we can save him for is a living death in a madhouse. Ah, there's a glimmer of light just ahead. The door to the vault. It's ajar. He must have a lamp inside. Let me go first. I'm faint. I can't see much. 
What are all those big, bulky shapes? Stone coffins of our ancestors. There's something moving over there in the shadow behind that stone pillar. It's a count. He's got a knife. He's... Look out, Robin. Be careful, Holmes. He's mad. Let me go. Let me finish this. Oh, oh, you want to stop Drop that knife. No, no. Give me your hand here, Watson. I've got it. I've got it. You're wounded. Oh, it's nothing. Just a scratch in my hand. Why did you have to interfere? I'd be better off dead. Come, Paul. You mustn't talk like that. Take the lamp, Mr. Harash, and lead the way. I want to get your cousin back up to the castle at once. Against my rule to take a drink before breakfast, but this morning I'll break that rule. Thank you, Anton. Sit here, Count Romanian. And you, Mr. Hallash, over there. Anton, lock that door and remain in case I should need you. Oh, what is the use of prolonging the agony, Mr. Holmes? If you'd let me finish things down there. We haven't much time left, Count Romanian. The peasants from the village may be here at any moment. Well, then turn me over to them and let them do what they want. You know we would never do that, Paul. We will protect you no matter what happens, and no matter what you may have done. After all, you weren't responsible for your actions. I'm afraid I must correct you there, Mr. Halash. Count Romania is and has been fully as responsible for everything he has done as any other sane person. What sort of riddle are you asking us, Holmes? Are you attempting to deny Count Romania's uh, dreams, the episode of the dog, the burial vault, and the horrible death of that girl? I'm not offering a riddle, Watson, but its solution. Your dreams, Count Romania, had one feature which immediately led me to suspect their unnatural origin... You spoke of brilliant colors, of unearthly music, of a distorted sense of space and time. All characteristics of the dreams, or more properly, visions induced by the drug cannabis indica, more commonly known as hashish. Good heavens. And since you showed none of the signs of the habitual drug taker, it was at once obvious to me that your dreams were being induced by someone else. Someone who administered the drug to you in your food or wine on those occasions when they desired you to have one of your hallucinations. But last night... That girl, the blood... The bloodstains were the final confirmation, if I needed any, that you had not committed the crime. The real killer slipped badly there. It did not occur to him, when smearing the blood upon you and the bedclothes, that during a four-mile walk from where that poor girl was killed, the girl, the blood would have dried upon you and not come off upon the bedclothes. Peter Hallash, have you ever seen an execution in this country? Why do you address me? What have I to do with all this? Who but you would inherit the Romanian title and estates? No, no. In the early hours of dawn, the prisoner is led out, his hands tied behind him, the priest walking in front and the jailers on each side. Mr. Holmes! He's led to this the same block in the center of the prison courtyard, where there stands a giant figure in full evening dress, his hands covered by white gloves, his face masked. It is the execution. Stop it! Then, as the wicked man is bent forward on the block, the executioner raises his gleaming axe high into the air for the final blow. I've had enough. I... Have you ever seen that, Peter Hallash? No, no. I'm innocent. I swear it. Do you think a judge will believe you? No. He did not do it. He speaks true. It was I. You shall do nothing to harm him. That's on you. I, it's impossible. I do it for my master and for revenge. But you never take me alive. Stop him, Watson. The window. No need to look out of the window. It's a drop of a hundred feet to the courtyard below. Oh. Perhaps it was best it ended that way. But, Holmes, I, I, I still don't understand. It's not difficult if you study the facts. Oh, poor Anton. But why did you accuse me, Holmes? Anton's fanatic plot to drive the Count to madness or suicide and to see, see you in his place almost succeeded, Mr. Harash. When his sleeve slipped upward and I saw the cut he'd made on his arm to supply the blood, I knew that he was the girl's murderer. But there was only one way by which I could force the truth from him. 
And I suspected that his devotion to you was so strong that only an accusation against you would unseal his lips. A hatred that Anton must have nursed since childhood. I knew that my father had wronged his family, but... Well, I, I thought that was all dead and buried history. Not to a fanatical Carpathian peasant, Count Romany. Mr. Holmes, you've given me back my life, my sanity. There was never any question of your sanity, Count Romany. I saw that from the moment you first told me about the story of your dreams. Well, nevertheless, I don't know how I can ever thank you properly. If uh, you and your cousin will introduce Watson and myself to some of your famous local fishing, I'll consider it thanks enough. And that uh, reminds me, Watson... Would you mind taking down a telegram for me? This little cut uh, momentarily precludes the use of my right a hand. A telegram? Close, Holmes. Oh, you'll find pen and ink on the table there. All ready. Who's it to? Messrs. Uh, Wilkinson, Wilkinson, Entwistle and Dodd. Gray's in London, England. How do you spell Dodd? Two Ds, Watson. Re-vampires. Gentlemen, I take pleasure in informing you that I have brought the matter of your client, Count Paul Romany, to a satisfactory conclusion. Trusting to be favored by you with any further such commissions that uh, may arise, I remain your obedient servant, Sherlock Holmes. I wonder how many of you had the same feeling I did about occasionally Tom Conway's voice sounding a lot like Basil Rathbone's voice. I don't know if that's just because I've heard so much Basil lately that that occurred to me. Uh, because I've seen Tom Conway in a lot of movies. I mean, uh, I Walked with a Zombie. Uh, he was the Falcon. He took over the Falcon role from his brother in that long-running series around this, you know, around these the same time in the 1940s. And I never noticed thinking before that he sounded a lot like Basil Rathbone. But nevertheless, there we go. The Adventure of the Carpathian Horror from uh, 1947. So, uh, what have you got for us next? Our second and final show for this episode. What's our next radio adaptation here? It is my absolute favorite spooky Sherlock. It's The Hound of the Baskervilles. Ah, the most filmed version yes. of, uh, well, the most filmed uh, story that Doyle wrote of uh, our dear Sherlock. That's true, yeah. And, of course, this has shortened a great deal, so you're not going to get the full movie adaptation. But it's still really good, and it's based on something that's really close to my heart. Um, I don't know. You may know. I know you know. I'm a big fan of cryptids. And um, one of my favorite is the legend and mythos around the black dog. Uh, and my favorite is the Wookalar. Well, oh, okay. Yeah, it's it sucks. Uh, it sucks your brains out through your nostrils. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I think you and Frank made that up. Okay. No, no, no. no, no. no? I'm pretty sure. Pretty sure Tim Conway and Don Knotts did. But oh, hey. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I forgot. About the Wookalar. The Wookalar. Okay. Wookalar. Well, uh, that's special. But anyway. <laughs> hey. Make fun of me. I would never do that. It's because I, I like a, a strange thing. Hell, that's you're the sucker that lives with me. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> well, what I was saying was uh, the legend of the black dog. And actually, the hound is based on a derivative or uh, uh, one of those legends. Uh, there was a tale of Richard Cabell, and it was on Dartmoor and Devon. And it was said that he sold his soul to the devil. 
he was a great huntsman. And then later it was said that after he died, there were black dogs around his burial area and that occasionally he would be seen riding with the black dogs. And that is what Doyle kind of based his hound on. Interesting. And so it's, it's very interesting. And, of course, there's all kinds of black dog all over England. Uh, there's the Bargest of Yorkshire. There's the Black Shuck of East, East Anglia. Anglia? Anglia, yeah. yeah. East Anglia. And uh, I, I know people who live in East Anglia. Do you know? Yes, I do. Well, you'll have to ask them if they've met the Black Shuck. Uh, I fear that if they had, they would not be able to tell me. <laughs> From what I remember of that particular legend, that would not end well for them. So, uh, Well, actually, there is at least one black dog that is beneficial, and, uh, and I cannot remember which one that is. Be, feel free to look them up, because there is a bunch. And this particular one is actually said to save people, and he may even be located on the island, and I can't remember. Really, save <clears throat> save people and stuff because I would assume with the black dog legends that we're t- we're talking about something that's uh, either chasing you towards your doom or just kind of seen as a sign of impending doom. Am I wrong there? Yeah, it's all, they're often uh, associated with if you see them, it's impending death. Oh, okay, okay. A lot of black dogs are seen in cemeteries and graveyards. I would I would assume, and that's without doing any research, folks, so uh, <clears throat> if I'm wrong here, I apologize, but I'm assuming this would have something to do with the, you know, the kind of often apocryphal, but sometimes I, I sometimes I think they do happen. Those stories where uh, after their, uh, after a dog's master has been buried, sometimes the dog will hang around the grave or in the cemetery there for a while, kind of mourning the passing of his master, and I didn't know if, I wonder if that's Maybe one of the maybe the genesis of some of these stories, but I, I well, don't know enough about these legends. To actually, know. Norse, Germanic, and Celtic uh, mythology myth, mythology that word and legends they all have dogs that were either gatekeepers to another the other world or hell oh, okay. or or you know they Cerebus, rep- yeah. right they represented something on the path to to death. Okay. Okay. And so there's there's some of that, but I mean, the the black dogs have been associated with a lot of different things. Well, why did you pick this particular adaptation? Because this one is from uh, 1977. This is part of the CBS Mystery Theater run of programs that uh, I think they were on the air for about 12 or 13 years. It's the uh, this is the radio show uh, once again without beating a dead horse. This is the radio show that introduced me to the concept of kind of the theater of the mind of old radio. Uh, this is the one that I listened to when I was a wee lad crouching in my bed and getting my pants scared off. But I have to admit, I don't remember any of their Sherlock Holmes adaptations ever being something that I that I heard when I was listening. I don't know if that's because uh, I missed them or because Sherlock Holmes adaptations to me at that time would have been a dime a dozen because I was busy reading the stories. They ended up adapting a lot of Sherlock Holmes stories over the course of the run of the show. And uh, this one, uh, I will admit, I, I I was impressed with this one. Uh, they once again keep the same actors that were involved in the last one that we listened to. In the, in the last episode, we did like this. And uh, it's good stuff. I enjoy it. But what made you go with this adaptation above some others? Well, I just really love uh, what the CBS Mystery Theater adds. 
Um, he oh, all, the E.G. Marshall stuff? The E.G. Oh, yeah, well, first of yeah. all, E.G. Marshall, E.G. Marshall, yeah. and E.G. Marshall. <laughs> I sound like Gypsy, but... <laughs> Who out of order is pure of heart and says... Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm like, I'm mangling Wolfman speak now, but... Um, <laughs> Did you did you ever hear CBS Mystery Theater before you got interested in old time radio? In other words, did you ever hear it over the air? No, I do not believe so. Oh, okay, okay. I had to I had the clock radio over the bed and had some terrifying moments with the CBS Mystery Theater when I was a, when I was a child. It might uh, it might explains a lot of the problems that I have now mentally. I really don't remember hearing any of them. I do believe that I I got I, I came to them by looking for radio shows. Oh, okay. And I think that that came about when I was looking for Sherlock Holmes and other detective scary fiction. detective. Oh. All right. Um, actually, what happened to me was I ended up, for some reason, having Sirius, Sirius, how do you pronounce that radio where they have oh, all... Oh, Sir- yeah, Sirius. No, Sir- <laughs> the damn satellite radio thing. Yeah, that thing. Oh, and, wow. and on on there they have a specialty channel and all oh, they yeah, do yeah. is old time radio and they do all of them um you know they do the comedies and the documentary anything. so that's where you first stumble across this kind of stuff well that's where i really got interested in it i okay. think i have done, had done a little bit before but that's when i started really you know, I, it became so much easier when you got the whole phone in your hand and oh, you're yeah, able to, you know, put an app on there called Old Time Radio and just turn it on anytime you want it. Well, tell me, um, this this particular version of Hound of the Baskervilles, this one's, I, I guess, your favorite. I know that you listen to a few of them to make a choice. This mm-hmm. is the one that kind of stands out to you for some reason? Yeah, I think I, I like the voices. I like the added value of him. He, You know, he gives you little tidbits in between. It's not just advertising yeah um and also i like the watson in this one because um this it's watson, a, this is a strong watson and yeah you have to have a good watson to do this story because he yeah. he plays such a central part in the plot that's true yes he's very, i don't think there's any time when he seems to be a babbling loony no, or no, anything no, like that. that i mean there's one thing that i kind of take issue with i think he would have picked up that CCH was a hospital instead of a hunt, hunt because he's a doctor, but I won't quibble about that. Charing Cross Hospital. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> eh, never can tell, especially when you're being put on the spot by a genius. So. Mm. But that's right at the that, beginning. That's right at the beginning of the show. That yeah. could be stressful, but he gets a lot right. So even then, they give him some credit. So you know, it's, it, he he isn't sitting there going, blah blah blah. blah. I don't know. <laughs> so, well, uh, once again, we have Kevin McCarthy as the uh, playing Sherlock Holmes, which. Uh, of course, is always amusing to me because I'm just expecting him to uh, to be the character he played in the Invasion of the Body Snatchers. So, uh, or uh, any of a zillion other characters, of course. But uh, he he makes a good he makes a good Holmes here, even though he is at no point in time attempting attempting any kind of British accent, which I can kind of respect. We're just gonna let it roll and see what happens, huh? Uh, and it's fine. You can do that clipped voice thing. Reminds me a little bit of how often Vincent Price can get away with playing a British character uh, without putting on a, a fake British accent simply because he is Vincent Price. After all. <laughs> he has the Vincent Price yeah, accent. Yeah, he's got that. Whatever, whatever, whatever that is, it's kind of, you know... It's a, it's a universal accent. It, yeah, it'll, it'll kind of work, you know. 
I speak English extraordinarily well. You will believe I am what I tell you. Yes, I am Spanish in this film. So, whatever it may be. Exactly. Well, nevertheless, here we have our second and uh, final Sherlock Holmes radio story for you. Some creepiness for October. Here's the Hound of the Baskervilles. Marshall. I remember when I was in high school, I studied a poem which struck terror to my heart. I still recall the opening lines, which went, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. Some of you will recognize the author as Francis Thompson and the poem as the hound of heaven and it's still terrifying but think how much more fearful it would be if the hound you were fleeing from was a hound of hell good lord what's what's that uh, i i don't know sir henry some sound they have on the moor i think don't coddle me watson when the people of the moor hear that cry what do they say it is they say it's the cry of the Hound of the Baskervilles, seeking its prey. Our mystery drama, The Hound of the Baskervilles, was especially adapted from the Sherlock Holmes classic for the Mystery Theater by Murray Burnett and stars Kevin McCarthy. It is sponsored in part by General Electric Citizen Band Radios and Buick Motor Division. I'll be back shortly with Act One. The mantle of immortality is elusive and unpredictable. Two fictional characters created at the turn of the century by Arthur Conan Doyle have become undying legends. So strong is the public belief in their existence that the city of London recently granted the owner of the premises at 221B Baker Street the right to change the number of that address permanently in order to avoid the hordes of tourists flocking to see the actual living quarters of Sherlock Holmes and his colleague, Dr. Watson. Our story today starts in those very rooms in the year 1902. My training as a medical man made me an early riser. Sherlock Holmes wasn't. On this morning, my friend was at the breakfast table while I was intently examining a cane that had been left behind by a visitor who had missed us last night. Well, Watson, what do you make of it? You've been looking at the cane for some time. Since we've been so unfortunate as to miss the owner and have no notion of his errand, this accidental souvenir carries some importance. Let me hear you construct the man by an examination of it. <laughs> Very well, Holmes. Really, it's a child's play to read that the man's name is James Mortimer. That he's a physician. But I would go further and say he's... 
an elderly country practitioner mm. who does a great deal of his visiting on foot because the end of this stick is very heavily worn down. Excellent, Watson. Uh, now, <clears throat> the stick was given to him by uh, the friends of the CCH, which I take to be the something hunt, uh, a local group to whom he's possibly given some assistance. Now, has anything escaped me? Now, here, let me have a look at it, Watson. Hmm. Well, I trust there's nothing of importance I've overlooked. No, no, Watson. This man is certainly a country practitioner who walks a great deal. <laughs> then I was right. To that extent. But since we know that the man is a doctor, is it likely that presentation to him would come from a hospital rather than a hunt? And when we see the initials CCH, does not Charing Cross Hospital leap to the mind? Can we not also infer that such a presentation would be made at the time he left? perhaps, to uh, practice in the country. And since the date is on the stick, and it's only five years ago, it's highly unlikely that an elderly, well-established physician would go into country practice. So, we now have a young fellow, amiable, unambitious, and possessor of a favorite dog, which I should say is um, as larger than a terrier and smaller than a mastiff. Come, Holmes. Well, the dog is too much. Not at all, not at all. If you'll observe these tooth marks in the middle of the stick, where the dog has been accustomed to carry it. The dog's jaw is too broad for a terrier and not quite broad enough for a mastiff. It may well be... It is. A curly-haired spaniel. My dear Holmes, how can you possibly be so sure of that? The very simple reason that I see the dog itself on our doorstep. And... There is the ring of its owner, and we shall soon discover why he has come to see us. The appearance of our visitor was a surprise to me, because although Holmes had correctly deduced his age, his back was already bowed, and he walked with a forward thrust of his head. As he entered, his eyes fell upon the stick in Holmes's hand, and he ran to it with an exclamation of joy. Ah! I'm so very glad. I wouldn't want to lose that stick for the world. The presentation, I see. Yes, indeed. From Charing Cross Hospital? Uh, from some friends there on the occasion of my marriage. Ah, dear, dear, that's bad. I beg your pardon? Why was that bad? Well, only that you've disarranged our little deductions. We had surmised that you left the hospital. Oh, and so I did. Immediately upon my marriage. Ah, was necessary to make a home for my wife. Well, we weren't so far wrong after all. And now, Dr. Mortimer, I think it wise if you will tell me what the exact nature of the problem is in which you ask my assistance. And then, to my astonishment, the physician took a worn and ancient manuscript from his pocket and read to us a most horrifying tale concerning the manor of Baskerville, located in Devonshire, and the origin of a curse on the Baskerville line. The manuscript told of the abduction of a young girl on Michaelmas Eve and locking her up in Baskerville Hall. The girl, being both courageous and ingenious, dared to escape from an upper floor by clambering down the ivy and then setting off across the moors towards her home. Upon discovering that the maiden had indeed escaped... Hugo Baskerville became as one possessed, and he cried aloud before his companions that that very night 
he would render his body and soul to the powers of evil if he might overtake the girl with the hounds he would set upon her. Excuse the interruption, Doctor, but you're certain of the authenticity of this document? Oh, absolutely, Mr. Holmes. It's in the form of a letter from the third Hugo Baskerville to his sons, explaining why they should fear going out on the moors at night. Mm, I see. I presume that manuscript gives a reason. Oh, it most certainly does. The hound. The hound of the Baskervilles. If you let me continue. <clears throat> Hugo's companions riding after him across the moors came upon a night shepherd. A man so crazed with fear that he could scarce speak. He told the riders that he'd not only seen the maid running for her very life, but also Sir Hugo on his black mare and running mute behind him, such a hound of hell as God forbid should ever be at my heels. Mm. Mm. Well, I come to the close, Mr. Holmes. Mm. It says here... The three riders came upon the body of the maid, dead from fatigue and fear, and also the body of Sir Hugo Baskerville, with a great black beast, larger than any mortal hound, ravening at Sir Hugo's throat with its jaw dripping blood. Well, such is the tale, my sons, of the coming of the hound which is said to have plagued the Baskerville family so sorely ever since. Well, Mr. Holmes, would you find it interesting? Mm, only to a collector of fairy tales. Well, then how would you classify this newspaper account in the Devon County Chronicle of three weeks ago? Mm, three weeks ago? Regrettable death of Charles Baskerville. Body founded famed you alley of Baskerville Hall... Pronounced dead by his friend and physician, James Mortimer, that's you. Coroner's verdict, cardiac exhaustion. Hmm. Despite some strange aspects of the death... Well, now, Dr. Mortimer, everything seems straightforward, but evidently you entertain some doubts in the matter. Something you didn't state to the press or at the inquest? Yes, Mr. Holmes. When I first saw the body, Sir Charles lay upon his face, his arms out, Fingers dug deep into the ground, and his features convulsed into such a grimace of terror that I, his best friend and physician, hardly recognized him. Dear me, no physical injuries? None. But although Harrison, the caretaker who found the body, said he saw no traces at all upon the ground, <laughs> I did, Mr. Holmes, I did. Footprints? Footprints? A man's or a woman's? Neither. They were the tracks of a gigantic hound. And your reason for withholding this information at the inquest? Because the people of the countryside do not share your opinion about the curse hanging over the Baskerville family. Sir Charles himself believed in it, and I certainly had no wish to add fuel to the flames. Besides... Yes? Well, there's a realm in which the most... Acute and most experienced of detectives is helpless. You mean the supernatural? Well, I confine my investigations to this world, and I cannot understand why you are now consulting me. Well, I came to ask your advice about what I should do with the heir, the new Sir Henry Baskerville, 
who arrives in Waterloo Station in exactly one hour. Meet him, take him to a good hotel, and both of you come back here tomorrow at noon. Mr. Holmes, Dr. Watson, mm-hmm. this is Sir Henry Baskerville. How, How do you do? do? Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm all at sea. I have been ever since I got the news of my uncle's death and my inheritance. And I had no idea Uncle Charles was so well fixed. Uh, Dr. Mortimer, as the executor of the state, can you tell us, are there any other claimants? Uh, no, sir. And, and then this morning, I find this note at my hotel... And one of my brand new boots is missing. May I see the note? Of course. Dime novel stuff, if you ask me. As you value your life or reason, keep away from the moor. We must all agree there's nothing supernatural about this. Now, the missing boot? A brand new pair. I bought them just yesterday. Left them outside my hotel door to be polished, and one of them's gone this morning. I can only tell you that there is no devil in hell and no man upon earth who can prevent me from going to the home of my own people. And so it was arranged that on Saturday I was to accompany Sir Henry and take up residence with him at Baskerville Hall because Holmes was insistent that someone be with Sir Henry at all times. When Holmes and I called to pick up Sir Henry at his hotel Saturday... We found the young baronet in a rage. I won't be played for a sucker in this hotel. You still haven't located your boots, Sir Henry? But this is a different one. What? I got the other one back, and now I'm missing an old black one. I'm beginning to think this hotel is nothing but a den of thieves. I think it's very odd and damnably dangerous. Mr. Holmes, if you know something, you should inform us so that we may... Dr. Mortimer, I know only that you were concerned about the safety of Sir Henry... And quite rightly so. I also know that someone knew that you were in this hotel and saw fit to warn you to keep away from Baskerville Hall and the moor. Now, we all know that there were extremely suspicious circumstances surrounding the death of Sir Charles Baskerville. I therefore suggest that anything out of the ordinary, such as the curious incidents with the boots, must be taken very seriously. Well, surely you must be joking about the boots, Holmes. I fail to My see... My dear what... Watson, did you bring your revolver as I asked? Of course. Good. Carry it at all times. Well, I confess, sir, your instructions are making me nervous. They should have precisely the opposite effect. Now, Dr. Mortimer, as executor of Sir Charles Will, you know the exact amount of the estate. Is it considerable? Well, I should say that a sum in excess of 740,000 pounds is indeed considerable. Dear me, dear me. That is a stake for which a man might well play a desperate game. In the event something happens to Sir Henry, who stands to inherit? A distant cousin named James Desmond. And if you have any suspicions in that direction, let me inform you, he's a clergyman in his 70s. Thank you. Now, Watson, I want complete and daily reports from you. When the crisis arises, as it surely will, I will direct you how to act. Now, gentlemen, goodbye and Godspeed. Ever since I was old enough to read, I have delighted in the adventures of Sherlock Holmes and his bumbling but lovable colleague, Dr. Watson. 
the game is afoot. And we'll be back shortly with Act Two. most successful writers of modern detective stories once made a terrible pun, but a perceptive comment on Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's stories about Sherlock Holmes. It went this way. Be they ever so humble, there's no police like Holmes. I agree wholeheartedly. And now we have the pleasure of rejoining Dr. Watson, Sir Henry Baskerville, and Dr. James Mortimer in the wagonette carrying them and their luggage across the moors on the way to Baskerville Hall. Hello, look at that, Sir Henry and Watson. I believe it's a mounted soldier with a rifle. Uh, pull up, driver. Pull up. Not to worry, sir. He's on the watch for a convict that escaped from Princeton. The farmers here don't like it. He's a man that will stop a nothing. It's seldom. A nothing he'll murderer. I gave an involuntary shudder. It was a case Holmes had taken an interest in because of the ferocity of the man, Selden, who escaped the death penalty only because his atrocious conduct had led to doubts about his sanity. As I shivered, the wagon swept onto a long driveway where stood a huge building with mullioned windows. Standing in front of the large, heavy door was an angular woman with deep-set eyes which blazed with fanatic fire. Welcome to Baskerville Hall, Sir Henry. I'm Mrs. Harrison, the caretaker's wife. My husband will be here shortly. He joins with me in wishing you a long, happy life and in begging you to avoid the moor, particularly in those hours of darkness when the powers of evil are exalted. next morning I set out to explore the moor by daylight. As I walked along a grey and lonely road wishing that Holmes were here to help me, my thoughts were interrupted by a man calling my name. Dr. Watson! Dr. Watson! Yes, sir? I'm Stapleton. I just live down the moor at Merripit House. Most of the folks around here <laughs> call me an eccentric because of my hobby. I'm a naturalist. I can see that from your net and box. But how do you know me? Oh, no mystery about that. You passed Dr. Mortimer's house a short way back. He pointed you out to me as you passed. As our road lay the same way, I thought I'd overtake you and introduce myself. How is Sir Henry? None the worse for his journey, I trust? Well, he's very well, thank you. Not afraid of living down here? After the sad death of Sir Charles. That is of some concern to you, sir. Well, it means a great deal to the countryside to have a wealthy man such as Sir Henry with us. Well, I'm glad to hear he has no superstitious fears of the fiend dog, which is supposed to haunt the family. Well, I don't believe he has. Uh, how do you stand on the matter? Uh, I'm a scientist. But it's extraordinary how credulous the farmers are. Any number of them are ready to swear they've seen such a creature on the moor. And you have? Perhaps, of course not. Although I have no doubt the story led to Sir Charles's tragic end. Indeed. Why do you think that? Well, Sir Charles had a vivid imagination and a diseased heart. 
His nerves were so on edge that the appearance of any dog at all at night near the U Alley might well have triggered a fatal heart attack. Do you agree? Well, I've come to no conclusions. Uh, quite so. Well, if you care to come along with me to Merripit House, I'll, I'll introduce you to my sister. Well, that's very kind of you. Uh, tell me what you think of the moor. Well, this morning's my first venture on it. But that large plain to the north looks like a fine place for a gallop on a horse. Uh, that thought has already cost several lives, Dr. Watson. What? That seems hard to believe. You see those bright green spots scattered thickly over it? Ah, yes. <laughs> yes, they seem more fertile than the rest. Well, you might say that. <laughs> but in reality, that's the great Grimpen Mire. One false step for man or beast, and you die slowly and agonizingly in the quicksand. An awful place, Doctor. And yet, I find my way to the very heart of it safely. Why would you want to go to such a place? That's where the rarest plants and butterflies are. And I have the wit to reach them. Good Lord, what was that? Uh, the natives say it's the hound of the Baskervilles calling for its prey. Well, you don't believe that, do you? Perhaps it's the mud settling in the bog. Well, excuse me, but unless I'm mistaken, there's a purple hair streak. Ha! Very rare. I'll, 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 I'll join you at Merripit House. You can't miss it. Stapleton was off with amazing speed and agility. To my dismay, the creature fluttered straight for the great mire. But Stapleton never paused for a moment. I stood watching him and then turned to find a woman near me upon the path. Slim elegant, with a sensitive mouth and dark, eager eyes. Go back. Go straight back to London. Instantly. Instantly. What? Why? I, I mean, why should I go back? I cannot explain, but do what I ask. Go back and never set foot on this moor again. But I have just only come. Can't you tell when a warning is for your own good? Get away from this place immediately. But, ma'am, I... My brother's coming back. Don't say a word. Shh. Uh, 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 hello, Belle. Well, Jack, you're you're very warm and out of breath. Uh, I see. Well, what was it this time? <laughs> Purple hair streak. Seldom found in the late autumn. Pretty, I missed him. Oh, you've introduced yourselves, I see. Oh, yes. Uh, I, I was telling Sir Henry that it was rather late for him to see the true beauties of the moor. <laughs> You think he's Sir Henry Baskerville? Of course. Oh, no, ma'am. I'm only a humble commoner. My name is Dr. Watson. Oh, we've been talking at cross purposes. Well, you've not had very much time for talk. Well, I, I merely mean that I talked as if Dr. Watson were a resident instead of a visitor. chose this out-of-the-way spot to settle down in, Doctor, because it offers an unlimited field of work in the areas of botany and zoology. And Dr. Mortimer is a learned man, and Sir Charles was also an admirable companion. We knew him well and missed him. Of course, we miss our boys, too, don't we, Beryl? Most certainly. Your boys? Yes, I, I had a school in the North Country. However... Serious epidemic broke out and three of the boys died. 
School never recovered from the blow. Well, I uh, feel I should be getting back to the hall. Well, as you wish. Uh, do you think we'd be intruding if Beryl and I were to call this afternoon and make the acquaintance of Sir Henry? I'm sure Sir Henry would be delighted. I set off rapidly upon the same path by which we'd come. But there must have been some shortcut, because before I'd reached the road, I was astounded to see Miss Stapleton sitting upon a rock by the side of the track. Oh, oh, I've run all the way in order to cut you off, Dr. Watson, and to tell you to forget what I said. I must not stop, or my brother will miss me. Now, now, hold on a moment, please. Uh, Sir Henry's welfare is a close concern of mine. Why were you so eager he should leave here? Well, my brother and I were very much shocked by, by the death of Sir Charles. We all know the story of the hound, and I felt he should be warned. But the hound's story is nonsense. No, I happen to believe it. Now, I must go back. Uh, now, now, just one more question. Why did you not wish your brother to know about the warning? My brother's most anxious to have the hall inhabited. He thinks it is for the good of the people here. He'd have been angry if he knew I'd urged Sir Henry to leave. My dear Holmes, I am writing to report that I have solved one riddle, only unfortunately to come up with another. You may recall my mentioning to you that I believed I heard a woman sobbing during the first night I spent at Baskerville Hall. I mentioned this to Sir Henry, and we agreed that if I heard anything this night, I should wake him and we would investigate together. Along about two o'clock in the morning, I heard stealthy footsteps going past my door. I was out of bed in a flash and waited until they'd passed. I went to Sir Henry's room and tapped softly our prearranged signal. Yes? You heard something, Watson? Our footsteps. No sobbing? No. The footsteps passed my door and went down the corridor. I see that it turns left. Where does it end? At a window overlooking the moors. And the steps went in that direction. <laughs> Mrs. Harrison. What in the world is she doing? She's holding a candle against the window and peering out. Her face is pressed almost against the glass. And crying bitterly. Come on, Watson. We'll get to the bottom of this. All right, Mrs. Harrison. Tell us what you're doing up here. Oh, 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 Sir Henry, I... I was just going round to see that the windows were fastened. On the second floor? Uh, oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. I, I check all the windows at night. And that makes you cry? Well, I, I, I was doing no harm, sir. I, I was just holding a candle to the window. She must have been signalling someone. Oh, no, no, sir. There. There it is, Sir Henry. An answering signal from the moor. No, sir. It's, it's nothing. It's nothing at all, sir. Move that candle across the window, Watson. That's it. There. Mrs. Harrison. You see, the other light moves also. Now, speak up. What is the meaning of all this? Oh, please believe me, Sir Henry. It has nothing to do with you. It, it, it's a personal matter. So you say. I know your family has been employed by mine for more than 50 years. 
but I'm not in Baskerville Hall a week before I find you deep in some dark plot against me. Oh, no, sir, no, sir, not against you, not you. <laughs> you, you see, sir, my unhappy brother is... He's starving on the moor. I cannot let him perish on my very doorstep. This light is a signal that food is ready for him, and his light is to show me and my husband the spot to which to bring it. Good Lord! Then your brother is... Yes! The escaped convict, Selden. The evil Notting Hill murderer. He is my brother. <laughs> the weeping unfortunate woman to her husband and left her. Sir Henry insisted on accompanying me on the moor to assist me in capturing this dangerous criminal. I had my revolver and Sir Henry a hunting crop. The moor was pitch black, but we easily picked out the pinpoint of light where the fellow was waiting. <coughs> Mind the footing, Sir Henry. <laughs> a pity we can't show a light. I think we should bear more to the right. There's his light. Watson. What's that? Uh, I, I don't know. A sound they have on the moor. I, I heard it once before. Don't coddle me, Watson. That was the cry of the hound. They say it's the cry of the hound of the Baskervilles. Do you believe that, Watson? No, but I think that we should forget our expedition. No, by thunder, whatever that cry was, it came from far away, near the mire. We must continue and get that convict. I don't think that's wise. I urge you to return to the hall. You don't believe in this hellhound and neither do I. Come on, man. Well, I'm charged with your safety. Holmes would never forgive me if something happened to you while you were in while my While we care. stand here drawing, our man will get away. Now, come on. No, I cannot allow it. You can't prevent it. Well, either you come back to the hall with me now, willingly, or I shall be forced to knock you down and carry you back. Which shall it be? Each of us carries within us the seeds of our own destruction. It would appear that Sir Henry Baskerville was no different. His pride was driving him to disregard the advice of those who were there to protect him. We'll be back with Act Three and his decision in just a little while. my hand is a little capsule. It's contact. It contains enough cold medicine to help relieve cold symptoms caused by every known virus. Think about that the next time you're sick. Sneezing, dripping, all clogged up. Then let us help you with real medicine, like contact. We're number one in the whole world. Give your cold to contact. Real medicine for real cold. Take only as direct. We've brought our microphones to New Jersey to find out how people here spell relief. Oh, ma'am, pardon me, ma'am. Can I ask you Sorry, how you... Sorry, I'm late. I don't have any money with me. I gave it the office. No, no, I'm not going to ask you for any money. I just... Sure, sure. The last guy who said that was Brendan Byrne. Well, I... Now, his tax is enough to put us all on relief. That's what I was going to ask. How do you spell relief? Relief? Relief for New Jersey? Uh -huh. I spell relief. K-E-A-N. No, no, relief. How do you spell relief? New Jersey spells relief. K-E-A-N. Pronounced Kane. Tom Kane. Yeah, but I... Now, he raised Kane over Burns' tax as Republican leader in the Assembly. And now we want to raise Kane to governor. Tom, K-E-A-N, pronounced Kane. That's right. Now, you'll want to know how I spell burn. Okay. 
How do you spell burn? I spell burn O-U-T, pronounced out. I... And the way to get burnout is to raise cane, K-E-A-N, pronounced cane. And that's how they're spelling relief in New Jersey, folks. Paid for by K-E-A-N, Cane for Governor Committee. People have varying thresholds of fear. For example, I have no particular fear of heights, but a friend of mine hugs the wall if he finds himself on a terrace more than three floors up. As for me, I shudder at the thought of being hunted down by a pack of dogs, whereas an experienced woodsman might not find that so terrifying. However, I think even an experienced hunter might well find the baying of a fiend dog, a hound from hell, a soul-shattering experience. There it is again, Sir Henry. I don't know what it is, but you're walking back to the safety of the hall with me or I shall knock you down and carry you. And allow this murderous convict to escape. And that, my dear Holmes, you must acknowledge, solves one mystery. The other... I frankly don't understand. It seems Sir Henry is much taken with Beryl Stapleton, who is indeed handsome. She talks of nothing but his leaving Baskerville Hall, and he suspects her brother, Stapleton, of being subject to fits of insanity. I repeat to you what he told me of yesterday's conversation. Please, Sir Henry, why won't you listen to, to one who means you well and leave this place? I will, if you come with me. We can be married anywhere, you say. Oh, and... heaven save us both. I have no defense against your stupidity. Uh, this kind of behavior must come to a stop, sir. How dare you offer attentions to a lady which are obviously distasteful to her. Now, hold on a second, Stapleton. I'm not ashamed of how I feel about your sister. I was hoping she might honor me by becoming my wife. And if you can find anything dishonorable in that, then you can go to the devil. Oh, my sentiments exactly, sir. Come, Beryl. We're going home. You can imagine that Stapleton's conduct left both Sir Henry and I completely bewildered. And another thing. I'm sure there is another man on the moor. I swear I caught a glimpse of him when Sir Henry and I were out there searching for Selden, the convict. I ask you, Sir Henry, not to report what I told you to the police. The man is a public danger. My husband and I have made arrangements for him to go to South America. If you don't inform the police, he can lie safely on the moor until the ship sails. That is, if he can stay out of the way of the other man who hides on the moor. What other man? Whom are you talking about? Gently, Watson. I only know what my brother told me. There's another man in hiding out there. My brother says he seems to be playing some game of his own. Did he say where he saw this man? Around the old stone huts where the old folk used to live. About my brother, Sir Henry. Are you going to inform the police? What do you say, Watson? Well, if he were safely out of the country... It would relieve the taxpayers of a burden. Oh, Lord bless you, sir. Oh, thank you, sir. I swear he'll go and you will never hear from him again. And Holmes, 
No sooner had we gotten done with Mrs. Harrison than Stapleton was upon us with an explanation of his strange behavior of the other day. I would ask you to let bygones be bygones and understand my sister is everything in my life. We've always been together. Yes, but surely you must have thought that someday a beautiful woman like Daryl would naturally... Marry? Leave me alone? Oh, of course. But when I was faced with a reality, it, it came as such a shock that I, I really wasn't responsible for what I said or did. I understand completely. Well, that relieves me greatly because, in that case, <clears throat> I'm going to ask a favor of you. Yes? Give me some time to become accustomed to the situation. Well, how do you mean? I will withdraw all opposition if you give me three months before claiming her love. After that time, I should have prepared myself for losing her. And if she's willing, she can become your wife. I myself was determined to discover the identity of the other man hiding on the moor. And early that evening, I went to examine the abandoned stone huts where Mrs. Harrison said her brother believed the man to be lurking. I approached one of the huts, closed my hand over the butt of my revolver, and entered quickly. The place was empty, but there were distinct evidences that it was being used. As I looked around the remains of a meal, I heard a stone click. Then a figure loomed in the doorway. It's a lovely evening, my dear Watson. I really think you'd be more comfortable outside than in. Holmes! Mm. I, I was never happy to see anyone in my life. Or more astonished, eh? Please, be careful with that revolver. Oh, I thought you were busy working in London. That was what I wished you to think. By keeping you in the dark, I've been able to pursue my inquiries freely. And I've uncovered some information which will lead us to the villain. And all my reports have been wasted. Not at all, not at all. I have them with me, and they help me immeasurably. For instance, they've led me to the vital bit of information. The vital bit of information, my friend. The lady passing as Jack Stapleton's sister is really his wife. Good heavens, Holmes. Are you sure? Thanks to you, Watson. In all the pack of lies that Stapleton told you, he dropped one grain of truth... He was once a schoolmaster in the north of England. A check of scholastic agencies turned up the evidence I just passed on to you. But why? Why this deception? Because he foresaw that she would be much more useful to him in her character as a free woman. But what does it all mean, Holmes? What is Stapleton after? It's murder, Watson. Refined, cold-blooded, deliberate murder. But my nets are closing in on him, even as his are closing on Sir Henry. Another day or two at the Jost, and we'll have him. Good Lord, Holmes! The hound! Which way did it come from? There, near the black tour. Come, Martin! You must not be too late. Not now. Faster, Watson! Faster! He's beaten us, Watson. We're too late. Fool that I was to hold my hand. And you, Watson, see what comes of abandoning your chart. Come on. Up there. Up there against the slope. Come on. 
Wait. It's uh, Sir Henry. I recognize the tweed jacket. No. No, Watson, no. Oh, the man has a beard. It's not Sir Henry. It's Selden. It's Selden the convict, wearing Sir Henry's clothes, no doubt furnished him by his sister. Dr. Watson. Well, you're the last man I should have expected to see on the moor at this time of night. And what's this? Somebody hurt? Don't tell me it's Sir Henry. It's Selden, the escaped convict who appears to have fallen and broken his neck. What brings you onto the moor at this hour, sir? I heard a cry. You heard it too, I expect. Yes. You hear anything else beside a cry? No. Well, that's very comforting coming from Mr. Sherlock Holmes. Well, you seem to be very quick at identification, Mr. Stapleton. Oh, you also, Mr. Holmes. But now that you're on the scene, perhaps you've made some discoveries. Mm, no, only that this tragedy will make an unpleasant memory for me to take back to London tomorrow night. You return tomorrow? Mm, that's my intention. Does that mean you already have a solution to the strange events mm. which have been troubling all of us here on the moor? No, 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 no. Any investigator needs facts, not legends or rumors. No, on the whole, this has not been a satisfactory case. I couldn't believe that Holmes meant to leave the scene, and when I questioned him, he quickly set my mind at rest. He was laying a trap for the cunning Stapleton, and he needed also to have Sir Henry believe he wouldn't be on the scene. The following morning at breakfast... Ah, good morning, gentlemen. I see you've already helped yourselves from the sideboard. I'm afraid I've made some rather heavy inroads on the bacon. It's exactly the way I like it. Tell me... Tonight you dine with our friends, the Stapletons. Yes. I hope you and Watson will join me. I'm sure you'll be welcome. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but Watson and I must go to London. London? Mm-hmm. Oh, I hoped you and Watson were going to see me through this business. My dear fellow, what I'm going to say next will try your trust in me even more sorely. But I beg of you to do as I ask. What's that? After you dine... Walk back to the hall, across the moor. What? Hmm? Isn't that the very thing you told me never to do? Mm, I'm asking you to believe me when I say you'll be perfectly safe. But it's essential that you do it. Of course, Holmes and I would be hiding along his path to Baskerville Hall, but we did not tell him that. Uh, careful, Watson. Oh, look over to Grimpen Mire. Isn't that fog hanging over there? It is indeed, Holmes. Damnation. And it's moving towards us. Our success and even Sir Henry's life hang on his coming out before the fog is over the path. Oh, thank heaven. He's coming now, whistling in the dark. And I can't say I blame him. Watson. Get your revolver. Oh, good Lord, Holmes. What is it? A creature from shoot. hell. Watson, shoot. The creature that lay lifeless on the path as Holmes and I stood over it was part bloodhound, part mastiff, 
and large as a small lioness. Even in the stillness of death, the huge jaws seemed to be dripping with a bluish flame, and the eyes ringed with fire. A white-faced Sir Henry staggered back to us. <laughs> what in heaven's name is that creature? The family ghost, and it's dead. Whatever it is. Yes, but, but the fire... Osmus, look. Now my fingers seem on fire. Holmes, it's a cunning mm. preparation because it has no odor. Thus it didn't interfere with the brute's power of scent. And now we must bring the man behind the brute to book. He's undoubtedly been warned by the shots that the game is up. And he's headed back to Merripit House and his wife. Wife? You mean his sister? And surely it isn't Stapleton, but... Sir Henry, I meant what I said. Beryl Stapleton is his wife, and his name isn't Stapleton, since he's your younger cousin. Hmm? The black sheep who didn't die in Central America, as we'd been told. What? I... I can't believe it. It can't be. Ha! Mm. Ah. ah. The door's open. I'll wager the bird has flown, but let's go in and see. Uh, there you are, Holmes. The villains tied and gagged her. One moment, Beryl. Easy does it, huh? Yeah. Oh, oh, Henry. Henry, I tried. I tried to warn you. You see what he did to me? There'll be time for explanations later, madame. But where is he? Where is he? Mm -hmm. Burning in hell, I hope. Dying slowly in the quicksand of the mire. Oh, he knows a path. He told me so. The path, yes. The path to his safe place in the center where he kept the great hound. I helped place the guiding wands. But yesterday, I changed them. I changed them. And in tonight's fog, he'll not notice. Stapleton's body was never found. Some days later, when Holmes and I were back in the Baker Street flat, I asked, there's one thing that still puzzles me. Mm. That business about the boots. What did Stapleton walk with two different boots? Oh, the first boot he stole was brand new, and therefore useless to him because he needed a boot with Sir Henry's scent for the hound. Amazing, Holmes. Elementary, my dear Watson. What is even more amazing is the fact that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the man who created the greatest detective of all time, a man whose cool, incisive reasoning served as a model for hundreds of lesser detectives, was himself a dupe of the spiritualists. He was constantly fooled and defrauded by mediums and was laughed at by the world for relaying a message from Houdini's dead mother to Houdini. Only the message was in English, a language Houdini's mother never knew. I'll be back shortly. you can go anywhere in America for only $50 or less. Anywhere by the most direct route for only $50. Greyhound's fantastic one-way bargain fare can take you coast to coast, border to border, anywhere out of state Greyhound goes. 
You'll ride smooth and easy. And you can stop over free. And here's something else. You can also take a child under 12 along with you free. Greyhound's $50 fare is good for 60 days or until June 15th, whichever comes first. Greyhound's $50 fare. Tell them that's the ticket, Pearl. When you want to take a trip, honey, why fly? Greyhound will save you more. My, my, say hello to a goodbye. Go Greyhound. And use Bank AmeriCard or MasterCharge. shows that Doyle, tired of writing Sherlock Holmes stories and attempted to kill off his popular detective by having him thrown over the Reichenbach Falls. Popular demand, however, forced a reluctant Doyle to bring Holmes back. Our cast included Kevin McCarthy, Lloyd Batista, Carol Titel, Robert Dryden, and Cork Benson. The entire production was under the direction of Hyman Brown. W.O.R. Mystery Theater was also brought to you in part by ShopRite Supermarkets, where you get a lot more for a little less. And there you go. Well, creepiness is now all over you. We've got a little Sherlock Holmes October flavor floating out there for you. And uh, just want to, once again, thank you for picking up... Uh, Beth, thank you for picking out a couple of episodes for uh, another one of these uh radio shows. If it were up to me, almost like every fifth episode of this podcast would feature some kind of old-time radio show, but here's the one thing I've noticed, and I'll tell you it's going to be true for this as well. If I focus on old-time radio, nobody wants to hear it. <laughs> nobody wants to listen. I'll get hundreds of downloads of other podcasts, and then I do a, something, something on radio shows, and the great checkout happens. Everybody just walks away. So if you're listening to this, Thank you. Thank you for being open to listening to some old-time radio, especially some Sherlock Holmes stuff, because our plan is to keep doing this uh, after each Sherlock Holmes movie that we covered. And uh, there are ten more of them, so keep that in mind. We will uh, we will keep this thing going, uh, whether you're listening or not. So you might as well listen. <laughs> there we go. And you successfully got something spooky in during October. Are you going to get this in in October? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is going to happen really quick. That's right, people. You're going to hear this fast. Uh, next up uh, next up will be a creepy episode, too, depending on how you look at it. Uh, the next episode of this show will focus on Evil Speak from, uh, yeah, we're jumping into the 1980s with both feet with that film, folks. Clint Howard, I, I, it's Clint Howard and and uh, visible, visible wire harnesses and uh, evil satanic pigs. So that's the next episode of The Bloody Pit. So that's what you're hanging around for. Trust me, it's on its way. Yuck. He didn't like the satanic pigs? I didn't like evils, man. That's, that's terrible. I'm sorry. You can't be on that show. I'm not, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah, not on, that show. on that show. That's with John Hudson and, and our mutual buddy who manages to flu- manages to like say his own name during the show, even though he works under a pseudonym. Regardless, folks, if you have anything to tell us, if you want us to stop doing old-time radio shows, it won't do any good for you to say that. But you can write us and say so. <laughs> at thebloodypit at gmail.com where we'll be glad to hear from you. We would love to hear from you. We want to know what you think. If you've got some movie that you think it would be great for us to cover, 
Uh, remember, we are continuing to do the 1940s universal horror stuff. That's what the Sherlock Holmes series is a part of. Also, uh, like I say, Evil Speak coming up, and I've got a few interesting guests on the horizon as well to do other episodes. And if you have any, any experiences with black dogs and you live in the uh, UK, feel free to write us about them because we would love to hear. I would. He wouldn't. I don't care. Ever been chased by a black dog? <laughs> Is there a perhaps motorcycle gang somewhere in London that are called the Black Dogs and they've chased you on motorcycles or even on foot? I don't know. But once again, thank you for listening to the show. Uh, Check us out wherever you can find us and uh, let us know what you think. I am Rod Barnett. And I am Beth Morris. And we will talk to you again very soon. Love.